This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Our sex intimacy panel, all right? Um, if there is any one part of the prostate cancer experience that I'm personally most familiar with, it's helping men deal with the side effects of prostate cancer treatment and especially sexual and intimacy issues. Separate, connected but separate. We'll talk about them. And so I know how important this is. And my slide is up, okay. So we're honored today to have this expert panel. Welcome Dr. Alan Schindel. Dr. Schindel specializes in sexual function and dysfunction, testosterone biology, urinary disorders in men and more. I enjoyed working with Dr. Schindel on our UCSF Your Health Matters document on managing erectile dysfunction. Welcome Dr. Mike Rebo. Dr. Rebo is a national expert in, outs- in outpatient palliative care research and service delivery. He's conducted both controlled and longitudinal tri- uh, trials of outpatient palliative care consultation. And Dr. Rebo just happens to be one of the kindest human beings that I know. <laughs> All right, welcome Lynette Perez, nurse practitioner. And for those of you who don't know, nurse practitioners are very highly trained and experienced, can write prescriptions and give medical advice. Mrs. Perez probably helps more men with side effects from prostate cancer treatment than anyone else at UCSF. I've known Mrs. Perez for many years and have great respect for her. Rahul Argawal, who's not up here because he was a last minute person, panel, <laughs> panel member, all right. Um, so you've, you've, you've heard Raul many times. Um, he enrolls patients with advanced prostate cancer in clinical trials. Probably don't have to say much more, much more about him other than many men in my support group love you. They are getting you know, so much support from you. And, with, 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 and, and I should mention your stand clinic which is a special clinic for men who are suffering from the side effects of hormone therapy and need some kind of mitigation or amelioration, and you do that, so thank you for that. So, um, what I would like to do is I'd like to ask each of you, we can start with Rahul, okay, to run through the side effects from prostate cancer that you are asked to help men with the most often. And please tell us what you suggest in the way of addressing those issues. All right. So let's start with Rahul, then we'll go down the line. Sure. I mean, I think that's a you know a broad question. I mean, there are a lot of different side effects, and I say that it it varies quite a bit from one patient to another, both physically, but also just what has the greatest impact on that patient's quality of life, and that really factors into what's most important to you as a patient. I think that. Um, the one that I get asked probably the most is the fatigue because we see patients that are on a little bit longer term hormone therapy and, and certainly fatigue is, is not, if not the most common, one of the most common side effects of hormone therapy. Um, and there are some, you know, real concrete things we can do to help uh, men with fatigue. Uh, you know, number one, uh, what we really try to hammer home, what you heard June talk about is exercise and physical activity. You know, there are randomized trials showing benefit of fatigue, uh, benefit of exercise and alleviating fatigue uh, among, among men on hormone therapy. And so it's really important. It's sort of a catch-22 because you're feeling fatigued and you don't want to exercise. But getting yourself out the, out the door, like June was saying, doing something rather than nothing um, 
I spent a lot of time in clinic almost being like a, a cheerleader, really trying to get patients to, to get out and exercise. There are some medicines that can help. Mike can speak a little bit more to it. He works in the symptom management clinic, and, and certainly things like stimulants can have a, a role to play as an adjunct. Um, Thank you. And uh, we learned a lesson this year. We're going to have a monitor here. So you stand by, stay by the mic. So you can see what's up there, thank you. So we need a monitor in front. So what it says in back of you is maybe you could get into, and you probably will anyway, erectile dysfunction, loss of libido, intimacy issues, incontinence, and emotional distress, as is appropriate in your area. So why don't you go there? And I think that's, that's important to emphasize because as those of you who are contemplating it or have had it know, the urologic effects of prostate cancer treatment are very, uh, diverse. There's a lot of them that happen varying degrees of severity and varying degrees of disability men experience from them. You know, broken into the two large categories, urinary incontinence or urinary urgency uh, tend to be things that are common after either radiation or prostate cancer surgery. Depending on the nature of treatment selected, the problem varies. You know, after a radical prostatectomy, the surgical option, many men experience what's called stress urinary incontinence, that is loss of urine with straining, lifting, lafting, uh, things that basically increase intra-abdominal pressure. After radiation treatment, many men don't experience any immediate side effects, but they are more prone over time to develop urinary urgency, a uh, sensation of urgent need to go, sometimes also associated with incontinence or loss of urine. So in either case, regardless of treatment selected, many men do experience worsening urinary symptoms after prostate cancer treatment. The nature of the problem dictates to some extent what we can do about it. Uh, Kegel exercises are very useful for stress incontinence, oftentimes done under the uh, direction of a pelvic floor physical therapist. That's where the most benefit is most often realized, and that's what I oftentimes routinely recommend to patients coming in after radical prostatectomy. For urgency symptoms, sometimes we talk about dietary changes, avoiding bladder irritants like caffeine, carbonation, alcohol, acidic foods, all of those things sometimes exacerbate symptoms and you can manage these symptoms to some extent just by behavioral changes. When that fails, there are medical options for the urgency symptoms. For the stress incontinence symptoms, the ones that are associated with uh, radical prostatectomy, if they are refractory, meaning they don't get better and they're persistently causing a man significant bother over time, that's when we start talking about various surgical options, which I won't you know, spend the time talking about now, but they do exist and can be highly effective at helping men address what can be a very disabling problem. I mean, we don't think much about urinary continence and being able to control our urine until we can't. And then we realize pretty quickly how disabling, how isolating it can be to not have control over such a vital bodily function. So that's the urinary side. Now, as Stan had alluded to, the bulk of my practice and, and kind of my principal interests are in sexuality and sexual function. And obviously, men who are looking at prostate cancer treatment or have had it experience a lot of problems or a lot of challenges uh, maintaining a healthy sexual life. The one we talk about, you know, the one that obviously gets all the research, all the talk, all the discussion is erectile dysfunction, defined as the inability to attain and or maintain an erection sufficient for satisfactory sexual uh, function. This is a major problem. It impacts not just men, but also their partners. It can be, again, very psychologically damaging, cause a lot of distress, a lot of sense of loss of self, a loss of, you know, of who one is as a man. It takes a heavy toll, uh, and that's especially problematic for men who are single, who are maybe looking to be in a relationship or want to be in a relationship but are afraid of approaching or starting something because they have this you know, sometimes very difficult to treat problem. Even though ED gets most of the press, and that's kind of the 
I wouldn't say easiest to study, but of the bunch, it's measurable, it's quantifiable, it's known. There are plenty of other things that go wrong or can become challenging uh, with sexual expression after prostate cancer treatment. That includes loss of penile length, uh, loss of ejaculation in most cases. Ejaculation, the expulsion of semen from the penis, is pretty routinely absent after prostate cancer treatment. Now, orgasm, the sensation of intense pleasure at sexual climax, can be preserved, uh, but it is oftentimes changed in the absence of ejaculation, and that's a change that many men don't really think about or aren't informed of ahead of time, and it can be quite a shock uh, if you're not expecting it, and it makes the ha uh, handling and the addressing of these sexual issues all the more complex because you're talking about not just erectile dysfunction, you're talking about what goes on with the other aspects of sexuality. Many men will experience a decline in sexual desire. Uh, to some extent, that's not directly driven by prostate cancer treatment, but it's driven by frustration. Uh, frustration with difficulty getting and keeping erections, uh, worrying about disappointing a partner. That will cause some men to kind of, you know, shut down to some extent. Steve Wilson, who's a very famous uh, penile implant surgeon, uses the analogy that, well, who would want to play baseball if you know you're always going to strike out? And ultimately, that can motivate some men or demotivate them, perhaps, not even try. And I think that in and of itself is one of the more damaging things about this problem, is that it causes men, in some cases, to withdraw. Withdraw into themselves, withdraw away from their partner. And that takes a heavy toll. I mean, Stan, you were talking about intimacy, and I always emphasize this with my patients, too, that ultimately a rigid erection is nice. I mean, most men like that, and that's an important part of sex, and I'm not saying that's wrong. I am saying that obviously there's a lot more to sex than a hard penis. Uh, and I think that recognizing that and working around that can be a very effective way to deal with sexual problems after prostatectomy. Anyway, I'll stop talking. Very good. No, no, we'll come back. And we'll come back. Thank you so much. So, Mike. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, I generally think about side effects um, as parts of a much larger whole. And the larger whole is us as whole people. The, the entire um, collection of side effects sum up to something that's probably slightly less than actually your experience as a, as a person. If we were going to divide up ourselves into parts or into dimensions or domains, um, we might use what's called the biopsychosocial model, which is this idea that all of us have a biology, we have a physicality, we have um, a psychology, an emotional side. Um, we have a sociologic or interpersonal side. We have relationships. And we have a spiritual side as well. And I think that you can see, and we do see, side effects along all those dimensions of humanity for men who are undergoing prostate cancer treatment. Um, what I often deal with uh, most commonly um, include fatigue and depression. Um, although sort of a crisis of uh, existential meaning uh, or a spiritual crisis, I think, is not uncommon as well. Because a lot of the side effects are essentially losses. Losses of continence, losses of erectile function, loss of energy. And loss, we know, contributes to a diagnosis of depression. And it also contributes to a loss of a sense of identity. We were talking about... Who are you if you don't have your erectile function or your urinary function? Who are you if you lose your hair? Who are you if you lose all sorts of other ways of functioning and identifying yourself in society? So I think that all of these are part of a whole. 
They exist within a whole person, a comprehensive person integrated into themselves. Um, one of the things that um, I first started hearing when I first started taking care of men um, who are treated for prostate cancer is that they had a different way of talking about what I would call a series of side effects. I might ask about you know, erectile function and continence and depression and fatigue and intimacy and spirituality. They would often talk about vitality, especially men who have undergone or are undergoing androgen deprivation often talk about losing some sense of being vital in the world. And I think that all of the individual side effects that we might talk about are part of that. Um, it's often helpful to enter into that kind of vicious circle of side effects and say, well, let's just start with something. Let's, let's treat um, erectile dysfunction. Let's treat depression. Let's treat fatigue. And so I'm a huge component of trying to do something even though we know everything is connected. Um, and I hope we can get to everything for everybody. But often starting with one symptom, um, potentially, as Rahul said, the symptom that is bothering someone the most may be um, a good target uh, for our efforts. Mm -hmm. uh, but, I, but I do think that this issue of vitality is something very, very deep. And I think our understanding what that means for each individual person. And I would say that individual person within the context of their relationships, um, they may be family relationships, they may be romantic or sexual relationships, um, really, really key. Um, I think that the, uh, the side effects um, that are shocking uh, to men um, sometimes are supportive of other areas in their lives. Um, sometimes other people in a man's life, when a man becomes more emotional, more emotive, when they start crying at you know, tissue paper commercials on TV, <laughs> sometimes other people in their lives appreciate that and want that. And sometimes the success of a support group, to be honest, which are not typically attended uh, by men, statistically compared to women, um, actually is improved by a greater sense of openness, vulnerability, um, even emotionality that might come from both the challenge of cancer from some of the losses uh, from cancer uh, treatments. You just mentioned something. I have to put a plug in because uh, Dick Riddington and I here run, uh, we've run four times now, or we're going to run a fourth time, uh, sex and intimacy class of men with prostate cancer. And the men cry and they hug each other and they say, I didn't know anybody else had that problem. Yeah. We can continue doing it. Watch for ads. Thank you so yeah, much. Absolutely. That was beautiful. Yeah. Like I said. <laughs> so, Nanette, as I said, you see people every day. Phone calls, that's all you do is help men. Basically, Peter Carroll's patients, but all the urology <laughs> patients, right? Um, and a lot, I'm sure a lot of people come to you with questions about their erections and what they should do and what medications they should take. But so just open up and tell us what it's like, what most men come to you asking. Thank you, Stan. Um, so I have, I have the great honor and pleasure of working with men throughout the whole di prostate cancer diagnosis from the time of elevated PSA, what does that mean? The biopsy, what does this mean? Uh, we need additional tests, what does that mean? And then putting that picture all together and, and actually trying to explain, okay, what does, what does this P 
picture, how does this apply to you? And going through that whole process of decision making, which you'll, you'll also address. But many times people, when they come in, it's, they first have that look of, oh my gosh, and, and recognizing that there's, they're going to be overwhelmed with a lot of information. And just being that uh, neutral person to say, okay, um, really, in, in, for many times, for me, translating what a lot of that information means, because intellectually they'll understand uh, the whole concepts of treatment and, and they'll understand incontinence, erectile dysfunction, but not really understand why, because just by having the, pla the placement, the anatomy will dictate side effects, regardless of the treatment. And then understanding where, where they are in terms of their baseline and how treatment would impact that. So um, it's just many times just listening and, and a lot of times just having them open up. And, and in our approach in terms of urinary control and erectile function just, is just part of a head-to-toe assessment because many men will say, I've never really talked to anyone about this and I'm not quite sure how, how or why I'm talking to you about it, but it's just a part of living, a part of being. So um, for, for many individuals, it's just having them understand what those treatments are. And sometimes it's just the day-to-day -day of how do you live with this? And where am I in the whole spectrum of after treatment? Where am I in this whole spectrum of recovery? And will it get better? And so recognizing the resources within and then utilizing resources outside for themselves, not only themselves, but for their family and their support. Thank you so, so much. All right, thank you. Just kind of putting the pieces no, together. No, 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 thank you so much. Um, so uh, here's a question uh, for everybody, it's just um, throwing it out. Um, we are adding uh, to the input form in urology a question about sexual orientation. It's optional, of course. Can any of you speak to that ever come up? You, do you ask? Does it make a difference in what your treatment? Yes, of course. Yeah, I, I think it's actually a very important question. Uh, I mentioned <laughs> earlier that there's a lot of data on erectile uh, What there's not a lot of data on, there's some, but not a lot, on how does prostate cancer treatment affect uh, non-heterosexual men, uh, gay men primarily, but bisexual men, other men who have sex with men as well. There are data out there indicating that the prevalence of prostate cancer is pretty similar across sexual orientation. The rate of detection is somewhat lower in gay men for various reasons that aren't entirely clear but may relate to access to screening or choice to be screened. So the diagnosis tends to be somewhat later. There aren't a whole lot of resources. You know, here in the Bay Area, we're fortunate that there are, tend to be resources for, for non-heterosexual men, but in other parts of the country, it's very difficult uh, for a patient to come out, for one thing, but also to, to find other men who have a similar experience and can help them navigate the particular challenges. Uh, the data that does exist, there are comparative studies looking at uh, both gay and straight men after radical prostatectomy, after radiation treatment, et cetera, it seems that in general, outcomes are pretty similar in terms of the physiology, in terms of continence, in terms of erections. What's different to some extent is how perceptions of ejaculation might differ, not universally, but there is some indication that disruptions of ejaculation might be more troublesome to some gay men, more so than heterosexual men on average, not in every case, but on average. Uh, given the different natures of sexual expression in gay men, too, things we wouldn't think about so much in heterosexual men, but changes in prostate sensation, absence of the prostate, right. can be very meaningful and, and can be very problematic for men who engage in anal receptive sex. Uh, that can change the experience quite dramatically and can be a very big problem. 
the uh, diversity of sexual expression in men who have sex with men is to some extent challenging because we don't have as many data on how to navigate it, but there are data to suggest there's actually something good about that as well because there's a greater degree of flexibility in terms of what sex is amongst many gay men compared to what we look at in heterosexual couples. So I think there's lessons to be learned and value in studying them, not just because it's the right thing to do to provide care for patients, but I think what we learn about how gay men adapt and how they can change and how they can adjust to a new reality and thrive and have fulfilling relationships despite prostate cancer treatment can teach us a lot of what we can also pass on to our heterosexual patients about adaptation, uh, acceptance, changing what you do, and still maintaining intimacy. So I think there's a lot to be benefited from further study uh, in non-heterosexual men. Studies. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much. And then I don't want to come back to you for a second because I've heard over the years, right, that some men feel that they can't open quite as much about erectile dysfunction and such with a with a woman doctor or a nurse practitioner. Does it ever come up in any? Um, initially, it can. Others, but again, as part of the whole assessment, um, it's also. It's in terms of any, any changes in erectile function. And so again, establishing the baseline, where are they now, what treatments are they undergoing, side effects, and then just kind of move, systematically moving through that. And so, so the more comes out and then more questions come out and just again, putting the pieces together. So a lot of it's just in terms of the, pro, the approach. Thank you so much. I have just a couple more questions then we should open up. So how about any of you who have, who find themselves being able to, being asked for help and being able to support help to the significant others? Um, so I will just comment briefly. Um, as a general rule, um, no one asks significant others anything except did you change the dressing four times a day like we asked you to? Did you give the medicines eight times a day like you were supposed to? Um, so it's relatively easy um, to have a positive impact on caregivers, mostly because we completely ignore their role um, beyond their, their role as nurses to their partner who's dealing with a post-surgical situation or uh, hormonal treatment or other kinds of treatment. So I do think that just like you've uh, updated the questionnaire uh, to make it inclusive, um, we have to, as clinicians, all of us as health systems, have to become much more inclusive to recognize that uh, the patient exists within the context of, of their relationships um, and their family, and that um, we relate with caregivers in such a limited way that even just bearing witness to the caregiver experience is a big intervention from my perspective. Just recognizing that there's a caregiver in the room um, and that they're being influenced, impacted by the illness. Um, sometimes it becomes very obvious that they have a different perspective than the patient does because sometimes I'll ask a patient something, you know, are you depressed? And the patient will be like, no. And the caregiver will be in the background going, yeah. Um, and that, that makes it very clear that there are actually two people in this relationship, not just the, the patient. Uh, but, I, you know, the general rule is um, we have to really make it clear that caregivers have a place in healthcare and not just as the servants of our instructions about you know, how to Could the caregivers in this room raise their hand? How many caregivers do we have? Look at that. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So here's my last question for anybody who wants to answer. How about 
for erections coming back? Any kind of, in the future, some kind of neuroprotection studies, research? Yeah. It's, uh, it's obviously a hot topic. And, and people are very interested in, in preservation. It goes back 20 years now that we've been discussing penile rehabilitation, you know, treating the penis with injections initially. Uh, when uh, PDE5 inhibitors like Zilinophil, better known as Viagra, came out, that became a topic for research. Uh, those are kind of post-treatment interventions that we've talked about. To be honest, the largest studies that have been done, the randomized control placebo studies, have not reliably shown benefit in humans, at least in terms of erectile function recovery spontaneously. There may be some subtle benefits here and there, but it hasn't been quite as robust as we'd hoped. For that reason, people have investigated sural nerve grafts, uh, scaffolding that is placed in the vicinity of the nerves to help regrowth, uh, traction therapies, mechanical therapies. There's really no end to the things that are being contemplated and studied and worked on in an effort to help preserve sexual function as best possible after prostate cancer treatment. All that said, we're still in the experimental phase right now. None of these have been established as standards of care or universally beneficial. It is a topic of continuing on, and it will be a topic of ongoing research, you know, I think indefinitely. For right now, we just kind of do the best we can. And, and building on what June Chan had said, I always emphasize with my patients, what we know is good for your prostate, and we know is good for your penis, is exercise, weight management, stress management, staying slim, being active. That's not necessarily going to cure ED, but ultimately it's the one thing that we all have control over to some extent, and one thing that we know is beneficial. So I always emphasize that. We always look for high-tech cures, and I think we're still going to, but let's keep the low-tech interventions in mind as well going forward. Right, and, and you mentioned appropriately, some of you, some of, a couple of you mentioned that, that intimacy still can exist. So I just want to put in a plug for a book that I wish that my wife and I had written. And it's called The Lovin' Ain't Over. And it's written by a, a man and woman, man with prostate cancer. Their last name is uh, Altar Alterowitz. But you just look in The Lovin' Ain't Over, and it's lovin' not loving, so it'd be cute. The Lovin' Ain't Over. And it's a whole book about loving relationship with and without erections. And it's just, I just love the book. All right, so let's take questions. Questions for this great panel up there? Could someone, George? Or do you already have some cards? Don't fall. One word and description that my urologist had, you know, explained to me is it's a, it's a side effect of treatment that I never see, like on any of these uh, uh, sort of, you know, placards is anorgasmia, which means is something different than loss of libido. But my understanding is that it's, it is a side effect of ABT and Lupron. And I don't know, is, is it sort of like, do you have to deal with it, or are there, are there strategies out there that, or ways to kind of work around that, or, or, or not have that as a side? You just started talking. I mean, it, it's, it's a tricky subject. Yeah, so the, the question pertained to anorgasmia, which is the absence of sexual climax, uh, which is uh, actually quite common, uh, not just in prostate cancer patients, but amongst men in general, especially with increasing age. I think it's important to, to articulate that there's ejaculation, which is semen coming out of the penis, which is a pelvic process, which is pretty reliably diminished or absent after prostate cancer treatment. And there's orgasm, which is the pleasurable sensation, relaxation, uh, feeling very good, feeling intimate. That occurs in the mind. So it's, it's a brain phenomenon that is independent to some extent of the pelvic events. Even though they occur simultaneously in most men throughout our lives, they are distinct. 
and it's possible to have one without the other. Now, as I mentioned, anorgasmia is a phenomenon of the mind, which means that we don't understand it terribly well. It occurs in the brain, which is hard to study. What we know is involved is, number one, nervous system inputs, you know, sensory input from the penis, from the pelvis, from the eyes, what a man is seeing, what's going on, the things that turn him on and excite him. Those are pro-orgasmic stimuli that tend to increase neurotransmitters like dopamine and oxytocin, and there's some kind of threshold point at which an orgasm is experienced once these things are, you know, revved up to a certain level. There are things that are opposing that, like the hormone, uh, the neurotransmitter serotonin. So again, it's a balancing act. So men who have prostate cancer treatment tend to have more trouble with erections. They sometimes lose sensation in their penis. They might have less robust erections that lead to lower sensitivity. So there's this erection problem that's feeding into the problem of anorgasmia. There's also the disruption of ejaculation and the notion that with a less intense ejaculation, with less force and volume behind it, the perception of the brain of what's going on might be altered. Now, I'm in way hypothetical zone here. I'm just kind of making this up, but it's based on sound understanding of physiology that the way the brain is interpreting signals coming from the pelvis is radically different after prostate cancer treatment, and therefore, what the mind is perceiving could be very different. Aside from anorgasmia, many men endorse a diminished orgasm. They, they get there, but it's less concentrated, it's less focal, it's less intense, it's more diffuse. Changes in orgasm are pretty common, and you're right, it's not talked about nearly enough in our literature, in part because it's just so hard to study. Coming around to how you manage it, again, we don't have an orgasm pill. If we did, we'd you know, be doing quite well. I'd be on a yacht <laughs> if I had an orgasm pill, most likely. There is no orgasm pill. There are recommendations to change forms of stimulation, to alter sexual practices, to incorporate use of sexual enhancement devices, to communicate, to get the kind of sex, to communicate very carefully with a partner. That's number one. There are pharmacotherapies, none of which are FDA approved, none of which have terribly robust data behind them, but they are things that I counsel men on and do provide uh, after that consultation on some occasions if a man's having particular problems with reaching climax. Do they work? Sometimes. Uh, like I said, it's a tricky problem to manage because our understanding is so limited now, but there are things that can be done. Thank you so much. So we're going to just use cards from now on. Here's a card coming. We'll never get to them all. We'll get answers back to you some way or another with the question if you don't go to here now. Here's a question I knew would come up. <laughs> any substantial evidence at all or any evidence at all that using CBD could help in any way with prostate cancer treatment, erections, um, depression, any of that, CBD? I'll, I'll say a little bit uh, about what I know uh, for CBD. The evidence that we have um, is incredibly uh, dramatically outstripped by the excitement about CBD. New, um, New York Times Magazine had a cover. I had two magazines delivered to my house in the last two weeks that had CBD on the cover. Um, and um, the covers were very similar, which was, um, does it really help for all these thousand things that people claim? Um, even my 80-year-old um, mom uh, called me and told me that she was using it on her back for pain and that I shouldn't tell the grandchildren. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> the grandkids aren't concerned about CBD. They are looking for THC, which is the active ingredient in pot that gets you high. <laughs> um, but CBD is an 
is a known anti-inflammatory agent. There's some evidence that CBD can be helpful for um, a kind of nerve damage called neuropathy um, in diabetics. And that's essentially some of the only evidence we have for the benefit of CBD, and we've really extrapolated from that evidence that it might be helpful for pain, probably only certain types of pain. We have some evidence that CBD can be helpful for anxiety, and it makes people sleepy, um, and it can be sort of restful. So those are probably the two core elements of how CBD can be used. Um, THC, which does get you high, can be helpful to increase appetite, um, it can be helpful for nausea. Uh, but every other reason people are taking CBD should be sort of a buyer beware. Mm -hmm. I always ask people to think about, well, how much does it cost? And does you know, $40 seem worth it to you in terms of the benefit that you got? Thank you. Great. Thanks. Okay. I think we have time for, I know we have time for just two more questions. So how about this one? Is sex harmful to those who've had prostate cancer surgery? No. I mean, there is, there is an immediate post-operative period. I mean, you shouldn't, you know, roll out of the PACU and then get out and at it. That's not a good idea. You need to let your wounds heal. You need to let the incisions close and any fascial things close. So, I mean, immediately afterwards, yes, it is harmful. But there is no evidence whatsoever that once the initial healing process has occurred or in the case of radiation, that there's any harm from resuming sexual activity after normal recovery. Do you get asked that question about um, when I can I go say, back? To, yeah. I always say wait till the catheter comes out at least. <laughs> 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 You, you laugh, you laugh, but I've heard that story before. Yeah. It's like, how do I have sex with my catheter in? Like, you shouldn't. Yeah. Thank you. You, so, you all have been great. Here's, here's, the, here's the last question. Why are erectile enhancers like Viagra and Cialis not over-the-counter but sold by prescription only, or am I wrong? Are these drugs dangerous, or is it a prudish reaction to discourage their usage? Well, maybe it's a little bit of both. I mean, that's, that's my perception of it. I'll tell you that they are available over the counter in other countries, mm -hmm. and they are very safe. We've had uh, sildenafil or Viagra now for 21 years, and there have not been epidemics of anything awful happening. So it's a very safe drug. The, there are things that you should be cautious with, particularly use of nitrate medicines uh, for angina or chest pain. If you take a nitrate uh, with a drug like Viagra, it can cause a very serious, potentially lethal reaction. So there are things that you have to be aware of. There's also potential for minor side effects. Potentially, if you take it with a drug like an alpha blocker, it can cause some blood pressure changes. So it's not strictly prudishness that drives that. But is there an element of that? Is there an element of financial gain for the manufacturer? I mean, they kept it on patent a very long time through the work of a lot of very crafty lawyers. So it... Uh, remained problematic for a long time for a lot of reasons, not just prudishness or safety, but capitalism too. Well, thank you so much. Bless you all. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.